Hello, beautiful people. Uh, it's been a while. So I'm going to start this just by saying this is the third time I'm recording this. <laughs> it has been a while, and I forgot to check my levels, which means that I just recorded something that you could barely hear. So that's fun. <laughs> so uh, hopefully it doesn't feel like I am uh, re-recording everything. But uh, yeah, that's this is this is just what you know. You sit in your room and you talk into the void. It's uh, it's a blast. Why am I still doing this? Uh, the the answer is over the you know about two weeks ago. Four or five of my friends uh, just reached out kind of randomly and said, hey, I'm really getting a lot out of your podcast, so I hope you pick it up again. And they gave specific examples. They're like, hey, that thing about personal responsibility, I completely agree with you. There is no party of personal responsibility right now. Um, and I was just, as I was thinking about it, it's like I've got like maybe 10 people who listen to this, but it's fun and people get something from it and it's still cheaper than therapy and better than social media. And my wife still doesn't have to listen to me rant quite as much because I can do it here. So uh, I think I'm going to keep going. I wasn't sure if I would after, after the move. Um, it was a fun run and uh, I've decided I enjoy it. So I might, uh, I might keep it up for a while. So that's number one. Uh, a couple of other quick updates. Uh, number two, I had at the, actually in the last week, in the last seven days, a few of my friends reached out and said, uh, so you keep talking about how you're pro-capitalism. Can you tell me why that is? Um, like I just, you know, you seem like a thoughtful guy, but you, you know, how can you believe in capitalism? Um, and it makes me chuckle because I am very much, uh, pro-capitalism. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. And so I am going to have, you know, I'm kind of basing it off of Milton Friedman's, uh, um, free to choose series where he has, you know, 30 minute lecture and 30 minute Q and A. Um, I'm probably going to do it in zoom. Um, I'm going to talk about economic freedom and why I think it is important in entrepreneurship and innovation and free markets and capitalism and all of that stuff. Um, and so my goal is to have that ready in about a month. Um, so if you are interested, and by the way, it is more intellectually honest for me and a lot more fun if I have people who agree with me, but I also have some Marxists and some Keynesians and some people who I don't think I would agree with on a lot of stuff. That's, that's a lot more beneficial. So if you are a member of Democratic Socialists of America, that's the, yeah, I want you there. Uh, I would love to hear your take. I would love to hear what, what you view. Um, all of this as. Uh, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun and it'll be really interesting. Number three, uh, we're in Idaho. It's great. Every sunset is gorgeous. Uh, our neighbors are really kind. The first day that we got here, um, we were moving in and we had hired some college students to help us move. And by the end of the night, or by the end, yeah, by the end of the night, we probably had six other families who showed up. Just, they were like, well, we saw them moving then. So we're just going to help out. I was like, what kind of, this is amazing. Who does it? And they were all wearing masks, which was even better. It was like super nice. Um, it just made me really happy. I, I, I joked when I found out that I was moving that uh, it, it, the, the one time I'd come to Idaho, I just felt like everybody was, you know, living in a Chick-fil-A. Like everybody was just really nice all the time. And that is very true. We actually went on a picnic up to the temple here on uh, today, today's Sunday. We, we try and do that on Sundays. Um, so we go up to the temple and, you know, there's just, tons of families walking around. Part of it's because there's nothing to do during COVID. So there's not a whole lot, you know, it's good to get out of the house. Um, but all these cute families and, you know, moms and dads are holding hands walking down the street and you just don't see that in Maryland because it's, you know, it's freeways and it's more urban. It's just, it's just a very different feel. So, you know, my, my wife and I are just sitting there like, this is cool. This is just kind of adorable and cute. But the thing that struck me was they all waved at me. <laughs> you know, it's really weird. I was like, there's all these families walking. What's going on? And I think I got like four or five different people just to wave. And I'm like, I don't know you. This is really weird. Okay. I'll wave back, whatever. Um, it's like living in an episode of Daniel Tiger. It's not Chick-fil-A. It's Daniel Tiger. And the reason why I say that is because people just do the nice thing all the time. Uh, we the, the night that we got here, 
Um, the, the night after the moving, when that happened, th- those those neighbors, some of our neighbors were there and they helped us move in. And then the next morning, um, she came over and she said, I've been so worried about this all night. You don't have any food. You don't have anything to eat on. Here's some plastic cups and some plastic plates. And here's some bacon and some eggs. And here's something to cook it in. And here's everything that you need. Do you need anything else? And I said, uh, can I have some soap so I can wash this and get it back to you? She said, oh, I can't believe I forgot. Yeah, let me go get it for you. I mean, just really nice people. Um, it's been awesome. And I don't want to be too trite, but to, it is more honest to say I don't feel lucky. I don't just feel lucky. I feel blessed. Um, our kids have a yard and they are thriving. And we just we just knew that having a big yard wasn't something that would be possible in Maryland, not in the way that our family is set up. And so, you know, this is, this is a podcast with 10 of my friends. And uh, I hope it's okay to give a bit of a personal update. Um, we're loving it out here. You know, life is still life. We still have, you know, the normal ups and downs, but we are, and we are missing our Maryland family incredibly. Um, But we weren't seeing them anyway, stupid COVID. (laughs) So that's the first thing. But the second thing is um, we are just, we're just really grateful. We feel like this is the right thing. And uh, that's where we are on that. So um, I want to talk today about Andrew Breitbart. Um, I'm going to try and keep it short. The last two times I recorded this, I'm super irritated they didn't work because uh, then I have to do it again. But um, the last two times they, they got to 40 minutes and this is supposed to be a five to 10 minute podcast. It's not going to be 10 minutes. I'm aiming for 20. I probably won't make it because there's a lot to talk about here. So um, what I am going to talk about though is a way of viewing the world that I think really sheds some light on the place that we found ourselves in. If, if you've noticed that everything is now politicized and you're wondering why, like what happened? Is it just the onslaught, the gradual onslaught of democracy where, you know, the, the god of politics overtakes all else? Well, I think that's part of it. I think most democracies probably tend that way. But I think there's something deeper here. I think there's something bigger going on. And I, I hope that I can talk about it in a way that is useful. So with that, let's get to today's uh, topic, which is living, we're living in Andrew Breitbart's world. All right, so... I am going to go to, where is it? An article that I read. Here we go. So Andrew Breitbart is interesting to me. I I didn't know a lot about him. Um, And I've heard the term cultural Marxism before. Cultural Marxism is um, quite the the rabbit hole. If you ever want to go through a real black hole on the internet, go study cultural Marxism. Um, And to be clear, I... I, I, his history is not very good. At least that's what all the other people on the internet say. And so I'm willing to believe them. Um, I, I kind of went down this black hole myself. I read several articles, um, including this one. Politics is downstream from culture part two, culture Marxism, or from Hegel to Obama. The, the Hedgehog Review is, is really interesting. And they, they had a, a couple of really good pieces on this. Um, and the one thing that I would say, just, just so that you're aware, is cultural Marxism is a term that is highly involved with a lot of conspiracy theory. There's some anti-Semitism there. So it comes from the term cultural Bolshevism, um, which is a term employed by Hitler during World War II and before World War II to say, you know, the Jews and others are trying to attack our um, our way of life and our culture. And so we need to double down on the culture that we represent. We need to double down on our music and our art and our literature and, and, and that kind of thing. So this is a very old concept, but Andrew Breitbart clarified it in a way that I hadn't understood before. Okay. Um, and he also engaged in a way that I don't think others had and I, that I totally disagree with. So now that you have a little bit of backstory, let me show you the article that kind of started this, <clears throat> this understanding for me. So 
Uh, I, I saw this on, on Business Insider. The founder of Breitbart, one of Trump's favorite sites, also co-founded the Huffington Post. Here's what he was like to work with. That was a shock because I had no idea that he had worked, he had co-founded Huffington Post. I thought that was Ariane Huffington by herself. Turns out that, that uh, uh, he and Peretti and a few other people had, had founded it. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating. And the first thought that came to my mind was Huffington Post and Breitbart.com are mirror images of each other, just on the left and on the right. They engage in the same kind of identity politics, the same kind of uh, sometimes resentment politics, if I can be blunt, um, thinking more on the, on the right here. Um, it's, you know, I remember seeing a, a, a quiz from, from HuffPo where it was, you know that you grew up in Utah if, if, uh, if you take this quiz and blah, blah, blah. It was just, it was a hyper-local, hyper-specific, you know, they clearly wanted data on where you're from. So I didn't take it because I don't, I don't want to give them that data. Um, but it was fascinating to me because it was, you know, a lot of my friends were posting about this. They were like, this is amazing. How do they know? Right? Um, and it, it just, it makes you want to click on this stuff a lot more. And HuffPo had the, had the same kinds of stuff and, and, uh, or sorry, that, that one was from Huff, Huffington Post. I'm sure that I, I suspect that the, the right-wing websites did too. Anyway, so I want to talk about one of, one of Andrew Breitbart's favorite phrases before we get into this too far. This is a, an image of Steve Bannon. So Breitbart founds Breitbart.com, and then it's taken over by, Andrew, by uh, not Andrew, um, Steve Bannon, who then later becomes, um, and, and actually, before we go too far into this, why don't I talk about Steve Bannon real quick? So Andrew Breitbart is this uh, media, media guy. He... Uh, he works for Drudge Report and then goes to Huffington Post and then forms Breitbart.com. That later on he he dies of a heart attack. Um, Steve Bannon takes over at Breitbart.com and then becomes a campaign advisor to Donald Trump. Okay, before Steve Bannon is a campaign advisor and before he's at Breitbart.com, he's ahead. Of, I don't know if he's a head of an investment firm or just an investment banker. He's he's a, an investment banker, very you know pretty bright, um, who does pretty well. And is, from what I gather, a, bank, uh, a gamer. He plays video games and he notices that there's this thing called Gamergate going on. And Gamergate is where they're, they're you know, online video game communities are very men heavy um, and they are not very polite to women either. And so now there are some very interesting studies that are coming out about this and why it happened and, and where it came from. Um, but basically, the, the short version is that there was a lot of mistreatment of women that was very, very ugly. Um, and at the same time, there were a lot of men who were kind of rolling their eyes and saying, you know, oh, these social justice warriors, they're so annoying. Okay. Um, and Bannon realizes this and decides that he's going to capitalize on it politically. And thus the new age of right wing resentment politics is born. Okay. Um, I don't think that Donald, I shouldn't, that's giving Bannon a little bit too much credit. Breitbart deserves some of it. The media deserves some of it. Um, I think Breitbart in particular realized, and this is his, his key quote here, okay? Politics is downstream of culture. I think what that means is Breitbart woke up one day and realized the culture wars determine the policy wars. If you're losing the culture war, then you're going to lose the policy war too. And he decides instead of just to, to note that, he decides to engage in that and say, okay, then we can do the same thing. Huffington Post is winning the culture war, so we're going to create Breitbart.com and we're going to troll people. What do I mean by troll? This is the important part. So this is the article that originally got it for me. I'm actually going to go to the, to the Breitbart version where they take some uh, clips here. Okay. Huffington Post co-founder Jonah Peretti claimed this week that Andrew Breitbart would absolutely love the continued trolling from Breitbart News in the Trump administration where he's still alive today. This article is very short, so I'm probably going to just read the whole thing. During an interview with Business Insider, Peretti answered questions about Breitbart, who was also a co-founder of the Huffington Post. 
he was just bouncing off the walls at a million miles an hour. Tons of ideas, lived on the internet kind of a guy. Okay, so I'm getting this image of somebody who's pretty neurotic, very caffeinated, uh, pretty excited, you know, lives on the internet as, as was said. It was challenging to work with him, but also a lot of fun. He was at some level a real internet troll. Okay, so this is where I'm starting to get interested. Okay, Huffington Post, I think, does some trolling. Um, I think they're very much rage bait articles, you know, where, where you... <laughs> what I went there earlier today. What was it? Bison rips pants off woman. I mean, this might be the most clickbait thing I've ever seen. And every time I say that, I come back here and I see a new, even more clickbaity thing, right? But bison rips pants off woman might be the top one. That for, for today takes the cake, okay? So clickbait on both sides, okay? Huffington Post was was notorious for this. So, so I think it's very clear as Breitbart.com. There's a lot of uh, identity politics in both places. Hyper-specific identity politics, by the way. Okay, I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm a black person. I'm talking about Breitbart.com um, and, and white resentment politics and a lot of that kind of stuff as well. I'm also talking about, uh, from Huffington Post, um, what, what city you're from, what side of the city you're from. You know, just very, very, you know, odd stuff like that. But there's still another part that I, I couldn't quite put my finger on. And it's best explained this way. Quote, he told me a story. This is Peretti talking about Breitbart. Breitbart told me a story about how he was writing a headline on the Drudge Report about Chris Rock and how he loves Chris Rock and thinks he's hilarious. But the headline was something like, quote, shock and outrage. How could he be host of the Oscars when he makes all these inappropriate jokes? Peretti goes on, he knew that he could write it exactly in a way that would cause socially liberal conservatives to think it was funny and actual more family values conservatives to be outraged. He knew how to find the line that would cause all the different cultural cracks to explode and have people bang into each other. He loved it. He loved that kind of thing. So, some new terminology for us today. Cultural pressure point. Either a non-issue or an a hyperbolized issue, if you want to call it that, okay, an issue that should not be a big deal, but is becoming a big deal because people want to make it into a big deal, right? In in no way can I see Chris Rock being a politically sensitive issue. And yet, Chris Rock is now a focal point intentionally because of Andrew Breitbart. He has become a, a focal point in the culture wars between left and right. And you can see this all over the place. These cultural pressure points, once you see them, you can't unsee them. They are Anthony Fauci, who, depending on who you talk to, is a fascist who's trying to control every single thing that's going on in your life, or who died twice in the Revolutionary War and three times in the Civil War to protect your rights and to defend against evil and fascism and Hitler, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. A friend of mine posted recently that, that, Andrew, that uh, Anthony Fauci had uh, said that everybody has to wear swimming goggles. I said, what are you talking about? said, yeah, no, I saw it on a, on a thing. So I looked it up. Anthony Fauci is asked at a press conference, should people start wearing goggles? If, if the science is about mucous membranes, right? If you have a mucous membrane, then, then it can get sick. Should they stop, start wearing goggles? He said, well, actually, yeah. I mean, you know, if somebody coughs on your eye, you can get it just as well if somebody coughs close to your mouth or, you know, something like that. So Fauci says, you know, if you want to be completely protected, yeah, that's the right way to go. Completely accurate on the science, as far as I understand it, from my seventh grade biology class, Right. Totally makes sense. And for healthcare workers in particular, it probably does make sense everybody have goggles. Actual swimming goggles are probably better than nothing. Probably not going to be very comfortable, but it'll keep you safe. Okay. But now you take that and somebody is online saying, oh, Anthony Fauci wants us to wear swimming goggles. It's so stupid. Okay. Let me actually go to HuffPo because they, they put it perfectly. Look, look right here. COVID-19 has taken a political tone like nothing I've ever seen. Warns Dr. Fauci. 
But I, I agree, but I'm going to take it a step further. Everything has taken a political tone like nothing we've ever seen. And it's because of three groups of people who are all a little bit guilty. Well, some are really guilty, okay? That are all doing this for very specific reasons. The first example are the po politicos who dress it up as journalism. And the, to be clear, there are people like this on both sides. This is, I'm not saying that it is equal on both sides. I'm just trying to say that this is a common problem on both sides. The politics of resentment has now hit full steam on the right in a way that is very, very depressing to me. Okay. There have always been elements of it on the left by people that I consider to be acting not in good faith. Okay, if somebody is saying, look, there are downtrodden people, we need to look out for them, that's not politics of resentment. That's, that's just compassion, and I, I can respect that. I'm talking about people who know what they are doing, and they're doing it very intentionally to cause problems. Okay? So I, I see stuff like Steve Bannon. I see stuff like Andrew Breitbart. I see people like Donald Trump who are intentionally doing this because they have a political win in it. Number two, you have the media. The media just want clicks. They want eyeballs. They want, they, I mean, clickbait, rage bait. They, they just want people to eat, you know, the, the best thing in the world is to, to come up with something that's just ridiculous and offensive because then you still drive traffic and then you become the conversation. I mean, Breitbart, what did Breitbart have? They had something today that was, I mean, half of their, let's just go back to it real quick. L look at their trending line. Phony Kamala, cheat by mail, Dem City crime wave, Robert Trump, China virus and masters of the universe. China virus. They're still on that from months ago. I mean, this is why I don't even look at Breitbart, right? Now, I do still look at HuffPo because they show me what the left is talking about. And I have a good friend who was a, who was a reporter there, a fabulous journalist. So I'm not saying that everybody at Breitbart is evil. I'm not saying everybody at HuffPo is evil, okay? What I am saying is the incentives are super skewed. These, this, is, this is a problem, okay? The third group of people is bad actors, okay? And I, I think for brevity, I'm going to talk about them another day, okay? What do I mean by a bad actor? Um, and we'll, we'll take care of that later. Let me just mention this one issue. Once you start to see this, you can't stop seeing this. I, I remember seeing stuff like this when, you know, a number of years ago, there was, there was this question about trans bathrooms. And, you know, my friends on the right, I shouldn't say my friends, the people on the right that I saw, because some of them were friends, some of them weren't, we're saying, frankly, some transphobic things about trans people and how they should just, they don't get to pick where they go to the bathroom and all of, and just some really insensitive stuff, okay? My friends on the left, on the other hand, were saying some equally crazy stuff. Like, we need a national, uh, a national law that says that they can go to whatever bathroom they choose, which, like, education, we're talking about bathrooms in public schools, okay? I'm fairly sure that would be ruled unconstitutional. Education is a state enterprise, it is run by states. It is not run by the federal government. I don't think it, it ought to be, right? Like, I mean, just both sides are just not thinking about this. And uh, the more obvious answer to me is you should trust your, your local school administrators. If they can't help a child who's, who is different in a specific way feel welcomed in their school, then they are not fit to be a school administrator. I am an imper I, I was a school administrator. I was imperfect at it. I'm sure that I, 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 I already know some of my regrets. I'm sure that I will have more as the years go on. But if I find out 20 years from now that test scores went down more than I expected, or I find out that more kids than I expected did not feel welcomed at my school, I can tell you which one will give me a bigger headache, which one will keep me up more at night. And it isn't the test scores. So if you can't trust your school administrator, that's a problem. I actually posted about this on Facebook at the time. I said, people need to trust their school administrators to, f to figure out this problem. Somebody said, no, they, they, you know, those, those kids need to use the nurse's office. Well, okay, fine. That might be a solution for some folks. 
but it might not be for all. And that's why you work with a parent. You say, what's going to help this child to feel most successful, most welcomed, most like a part of our community. It's not a hard conversation, but instead it became the cultural pressure point. The thing that people could push, the thing that caused resentment. Another example of this, good arguments done poorly. Okay. Half of the white privilege conversation fits into this category. I think there's a lot to take away from white privilege. I think it's very beneficial. Yeah, let me, st I'm going to walk that back. There are some individual pieces of it that are very important to consider and that we can learn from. I would frame it differently. I would discuss it differently. But here's the key. I, I asked this to a friend of mine. I said, do you think that Donald Trump won in part because people resented the fact that they were being preached to about white privilege? My friend is very well educated. He's pursuing a PhD at the time uh, in, in economics. And he turned to me and he said, 10,000% yes. People don't like being preached to. And it didn't help that a lot of the people talking about white privilege were talking about it in such an irritating way, right? It was a, it there were, and, and then my friend even said, there's a lot of good in that argument. There are things that we should look at in that argument. We should reflect on it and be like, wow, I'm privileged because of my race in a way that other, like all of that's fine, okay? But it was so, it was done in such a poor way, sometimes judgmental, sometimes irritating, sometimes just not put together well. And, and again, if the politics are about resentment, then this is another opportunity. Gamergate. Steve Bannon sees the resentment building in Gamergate and says, I can capitalize on this. White privilege is another example. I, I, you can go down the list. Anthony Fauci, cultural pressure point. I don't know if Anthony Fauci is a good guy or a bad guy. I haven't met him. I don't know if he kicks puppies or waters his flowers. Like, I don't know if he's a decent man. I suspect he is because I assume most people are good and decent and he happens to be the leader of one of the nation's premier epidemiology institutes. I suspect he knows what he's talking about. He's not a secret fascist trying to control me through, of all things, wearing goggles. Okay? But on the left and the right, he has become a cultural pressure point. It's a non-issue that carries too much cultural weight. So I'll talk about bad actors another day. I'm not talking about politicos. Those are people who are convinced that it's the right thing to do, even if it's scorched earth. I'm not talking about the media, who I think use, useful idiots is, is a term with some baggage, so I shouldn't say that. They're people who are willing to play along with the game because it benefits them in the short term. They're not looking at the long term. And if they looked at the long term, they would realize it's not beneficial for them or for anybody else. Right, right now, I think there's a huge demand for a very, very honest sort of journalism. I think you see that um, maybe it's just my friends because I have a lot of very thoughtful friends on left and right. And most of them will, will post that little thing on both left and right. The, the very cool media bias charts, you know, where Breitbart is on the right and HuffPo is on the left and the center, you've got AP and Reuters and, you know, all of the, all of, and then, you know, on, on the center, right, you've got the Economist. on the center, right, you've got wall street journal on the center left, you've got NPR and Vox, you know, that kind of stuff. Most people know that this is an issue and it needs to get better. So you have the media too. Why do I share all of this with you? Uh, first, because I think if you start to realize that a lot of this is being done intentionally, it is not, I, I think part of it is that the democratic mission creep is everybody has to, we have to win no matter what. This is the most important thing we've ever done. We must win because we worship the God, the, the altar of the God of politics, and he requires a full sacrifice. Otherwise we get no blessings. And by the way, the, the blessings are not very good. They're not worth it. The God of politics doesn't have enough power to save us. He still requires 100% of everything that we earn. If you, think, if, you, if you think you're ripped off by your local church when they pass the plate around, you should check out the altar of politics. 
You have to give everything you have to make sure your candidate wins. And when they do, be ready for disappointment because they're going to let you down and then somebody else will win four years later. Maybe if you're lucky, eight. So I think democracy is part of the problem. The ever ongoing onslaught of, you know, a friend of mine accused me of, of being elitist on this. I want to clarify. I'm not saying that I think that a wealthy elite should run the country. I think you could literally pick 10 people's names out of a hat. And then those 10 people for five years are responsible. They, they go and they have unlimited funding to get as much education they want from any institution they want. They are, they are released from their regular job duties. They don't have a job. They're paid by the government for, for those five or six years, however, you know, six years perhaps. They elect the president that year and all the rest of us just move along. Now, I don't actually want to do that. There are real good reasons why that's a terrible idea, but here's the benefit, <laughs> okay? The benefit is none of us have to worry about the ever-increasing onslaught of how important it is to do nothing, to put nothing ahead. You know, thou shalt put no other gods before the god of politics. I think that's a problem. I think it is all-consuming. It's politicizing everything. And let me focus on that just for a second, because if politics is downstream from culture, then culture has become the battleground. And culture used to unify us, and now it doesn't. It does the opposite. It divides us. Our sports, police departments, caring about law enforcement, the FBI, which has always been the world's premier um, law enforcement agency, and is now, depending on whether you're on the right or the left, on James Comey's side, or on not James Comey, on the deep state, uh, on the anti-deep state side, right? Every institution that brings meaning and purpose and also some level of, you know, union, of, of, of unitedness in our country is under assault. Religion, same way. If I post something that is pro-religion, I can guarantee you that the people, yeah, I don't know many people who are on what I would consider the left who would say, yeah, that's, that's really good. I like that. I'm, 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 I, I'm not religious myself, but I really appreciate that. The breakdown is very obvious. And that's to say nothing of the bigger, deeper things, the bigger, deeper institutions like the Senate or capitalism or liberalism or the founding of America herself and her mythology. And just so we're clear, I'm a big fan of less hagiography and more honesty in history. But at the end of the day, when the mythology goes and the history goes and everything is subject to debate and we become, and we are now so cynical, let me tell you a little story about cynicism. I haven't told my friend about this. A friend of mine commented um, when I was talking about how I want to do this series on capitalism, he said, oh, I can't wait. I, I want to hear your, your, your reasons for exploiting people. And I said, exploitation like this? And I posted a link. And I'm going to talk about this another day, but it was exploitation. It turns out that Apple has unwittingly, or they're claiming unwittingly, been selling products that have been manufactured by uh, Uyghur labor in China. And China is, you know, has forced a million Uyghurs into detention camps, and they are literally providing slave labor um, from, you know, sources like, uh, let's, let's see, I had this up a minute ago. Nope, I closed it. Sources like the AP and Reuters and, and those kinds of people are now reporting that China has imprisoned a million people in detention camps. They are sterilizing these people um, to prevent them from, from uh, having children. Um, and Apple, as it turns out, uh, has sold some of the products that have been manufactured by China. I thought that was interesting uh, and, and worth bringing up. And I said, is that an example of, of, uh, of exploitation? And he fell right into my trap. <laughs> he said, yeah, 
I mean, are you going to call out Apple? I said, of course I am. Apple's wrong. They should pay for it. Why did you mention Apple and not mention the other obvious key player here? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the, the, the elephant in the room. China. There's a company who, you know, professes to have unwittingly used some slave labor. Either way, that's a very serious charge. They should get hammered for it. But the fact that you first turned to the company, the American company, and left China off the hook, didn't ask about what China was doing, didn't talk about the fact that China is doing something wrong, didn't discuss that China is committing an absolute moral horror right now, is telling. I can't remember why I got on that. Oh, because we're cynical. Yeah, we're super cynical about America, <laughs> not other countries. Well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe those detention centers are really nice. Wrong answer, guys. Okay. China is doing the wrong thing. And the fact that we are more worried about American companies and that they may have done something wrong in selling products, and that's American capitalism's fault. Then China, the Chinese Communist Party, imprisoning and sterilizing and abusing one million people, tells you everything you need to know about the, the, the warped view that we have, how down we are in America, on American capitalism, on American companies, and how unwilling we are. And I don't think that it's intentional. But I don't think that we have a sense of proportion here. And I think to put it a little bit more bluntly, I think the bad actors in the world would rather have it this way. I don't think China actually uses their propaganda to talk about how great China is. I think they use their propaganda to talk to Americans about how awful America is. And we buy it. I remember learning about the, uh, the Stockdale Paradox. Really, really interesting. If you haven't read about it, I mean, Jim Collins does it really well and, and good, good to great. But the, the basic premise is Stockdale is uh, uh, an officer and he's in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, he's captured. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I, I believe that it was the Vietnamese. Um, he, it may have been Korea. I can't remember. I'm getting my history wrong. I think it was Vietnam. Um, and Stockdale basically said, they, you know, they try to turn you. They want you to defect. And part of the way that they do that is by telling you all of the horrible things that America's done. And there are two groups who are completely immune and one group that is very susceptible. Okay. If you know absolutely nothing about American history, then your response is, I love America. Merca, right? Apostrophe, M-U-R-C-A. Merca, right? I love America. USA, USA. And that's all you say. And so they can't turn you because you're too ignorant <laughs> to actually be turned. The second group that's immune, of course, is the people who know plenty about it, right? They know about the Trail of Tears. They know about slavery. They know that Thomas Jefferson was both the person who said um, that all men are created equal and also a lifelong slaveholder, slave owner, okay? They know that that's what's going on. And so that they've already contextualized this and they've already made peace with it or come to terms with it in some way. They've said, I, I understand that this is a problem. But I still also understand that America today is something I'm willing to fight for. Okay? It was the people in the middle of those two that were very easy to turn. Because they knew enough, they knew a little bit, but everything else felt like they had been betrayed. So when the guards would tell them about all of the terrible things that America had done, they would say, well, I knew a little bit about this, but I didn't realize it was so bad. My proposition here is pretty simple, and that is that I... We are now seeing the things that would be told to us in a prisoner of war camp. <laughs> 
and we're eating it up because it's on social media. And to be clear, the answer to these things about how America is imperfect is not to reject them. It's not to say America's great. It's not to go USA, USA. It's to engage fully with the criticism and say, if there's anything in this that I can do to improve, then I will do it. If America is imperfect, it is my duty to make her better. So we've talked a little bit about trolling, what trolling looks like and how you write a, a headline that is just the perfect way to divide people. Let me tell you about anti-trolling. There's this great uh, phrase by John Stewart. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I hope I can. Oh, here it is. I hope it's accurate. I haven't actually found it yet. Okay. Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff here. Let's see. Let me pick this one. Here we go. That way you can see it. I wonder if I can zoom. Yeah, see, but now I have no idea. See, I shouldn't have clicked that. Why would I do that? That was dumb. How do I just make it bigger so you can see? Well, that works. Here we go. You can truly grieve for every officer who's been lost in the line of duty in this country and still be troubled by cases of police overreach. Those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. You can have great regard for law enforcement and still want them to be held to high standards. The image that I have of John Stewart in my mind is him in a t-shirt. Uh, it's a fireman's t-shirt. Uh, I believe that it was somebody who, uh, it was the t-shirt that he wore um, regarding 9-11 first responders. And uh, I'm sure as many of you know, he did a lot of work to make sure that they were compensated. That the people who did everything they could to protect us uh, on 9-11 uh, were taken good care of. I think that was a moral battle for him. Uh, every time I saw him talk about it, it was, it was quite emotional. I think he means what he says, and he really does respect law enforcement and first responders. Trolling is when you divide people on a topic. Anti-trolling is, is when you unite people on a topic. Okay? And that doesn't mean that you can't bring up hard things. I'm going to talk a little bit more about George Floyd when I talk about bad actors. Not because George Floyd was, just so that I'm clear. I'm talking about China and Russia and Iran. Okay. Um, but I want to be really clear. There are trolls out there who are trying to use these things to divide us when the simplest answer in the world. I mean, I tell my kids this all the time. No one I've ever met likes getting in trouble. But when you get in trouble, you have two options. You can get angry and frustrated and, and, and yell and say, it's not my fault. Or you can take account, take responsibility and be better off much faster. And also in the process, become a better person. So you can be happier faster, but you can also become a better person through that. Right? Tonight, I can't even remember what he did. My son did something. He was super upset. He said, I'm angry. I'm, uh, I'm never going to do what you want again. I said, okay, that's fine. Are you, are you sad right now? He said, no, I'm just angry. I said, well, do you want to be happy or do you want to be angry? Because if you want to be happy, you can try to fix it. And we've had this conversation enough times that he said, yeah, I want to fix it. He immediately apologized and said he wouldn't do it again. The answer to the critiques of America is not to become defensive and to say, well, it's not my fault. And I can't believe you would say that. And oh my gosh, it's so wrong. And it, that's just China trying to say that, which by the way, I totally agree with. We're going to talk about that. It doesn't matter who it's coming from. It doesn't matter if they're arguing in good faith. If there's something we can do to help people not to be killed by police, we should do it. Period. End of story. We open ourselves to the criticism. We listen to it. We do the best that we can. The fundamental reality of civility is listening to people, even if we disagree with their motives, to see if there's anything of value in it. So I hope that I have said something of use today. 
I hope you've heard something in what I've said that's useful. And frankly, I think you will see a lot more of what I'm talking about with cultural pressure points. I don't think it's going away. I don't think politics resentment is going away. And I will come back. You know, I cut it out for time and then I ended up talking so long anyway. So hopefully I'll remember to come back and talk about bad actors and the people who are just trying to sow chaos just to sow chaos. Um, but for now, I hope that something that I've said has been useful. And with that... Radical Civility is written, produced, and edited by Benjamin Pacini. Ooh, and I need to say this because I have a new job now. It is still just a bunch of my opinions. It is not reflective of those of my employer, past, future, present, or anything else. I think those are the only three categories. Um, and it is not reflective of my family or my faith or hopefully myself when I'm older and wiser. Nothing would bring me more joy than to find out that I, in 20 years, look back on this and go, man, I was stupid, but I'm smarter now. Thanks for listening. Go make the world a better place. Talk to you later. Bye.